Would you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2? We're going to be talking about discipline and forgiveness this morning as we look at this passage. While you're turning there, I want to just mention a couple things. I appreciated Pastor Jim's message last week and 2 Corinthians also as we continue this series. And uh, I just appreciate uh, what he was saying about how even when we do the right thing, uh, that doesn't always mean that life's going to go smoothly or everything's going to turn out as we thought. We do the right thing because it is pleasing to God, not because it's maybe going to make life easier for us. And what do we find in these experiences? We find that His grace is sufficient. It was just like week number one in this series when we talked about suffering in the Christian life and how God uses that to refine us or make us more like Christ or to teach us about his comfort. What do we find in those experiences of trials and suffering? We find that his grace is sufficient. And so today we're going to talk about something that would normally be called church discipline. Now that doesn't sound like a very exciting topic in one way, does it? Church discipline. And yet it is necessary for the health of the church to look at and to practice these issues of discipline and forgiveness. So let's take a look at the passage and then we're going to move into it more closely. I'd like to read for you 2 Corinthians 2 verses 5 to 11. Paul writes, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we again thank you for it. What a rich treasure your scripture is. It tells us about you, about your character, your mercy, your grace. It shows us how to live in a way that pleases you both in the church and in the world. And so, Father, I pray that we would hear this passage of Scripture this morning and think of how it applies to us as individuals as well as to our church. Give us wisdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In many churches today, you would never hear a message like this. And that is because church discipline has become a neglected topic. Some would say you just can't do it today. I mean, you can't practice church discipline. That's only going to open up your church to a lawsuit if you do this. I mean, we just are living in a different climate today. Or some would say that you can't practice church discipline today because if you do, people will just leave and they'll go down the street to the next church and it will be ineffective. And so they kind of avoid the issue or say that things have changed so that it can't be done. And yet God's word has not changed and God hasn't changed. And there is a place for discipline. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. You see, church discipline can be defined in two ways. 
Broadly speaking, church discipline refers to all that we do to encourage, exhort, and correct believers to help them become more like Christ. In that broader definition, discipline is really a part of discipleship. It's how we help one another to grow in our walk with God. And so when we uh, have sin in our life and a brother or sister comes alongside and points it out to us, it's kind of like that sketch we just saw where here was a man who was a businessman, who was a Christian, who blew up in the office and really did something that was not handled very well. And another woman who was a believer pointed that out and said, you know what? You really need to make things right. And sometimes in our life, that's exactly what we need. Maybe our, our spouse who says that to us. Or maybe we come to a self-awareness. Maybe we were coaching in a game and we did something or shouted or uh, were, you know, something that was inappropriate and the Holy Spirit prompted us and said, you know what? You need to watch your attitude. There are those moments in our life when God speaks to us and he uses other individuals. That is part of discipline, and it's what helps us to grow in Christ. In the narrower definition, though, church discipline refers to the process of dealing with serious sin that can lead to expulsion from a church body. Some sin is so serious that it needs to be dealt with on a wider scale. It has become public or it's known in such a way that it is reflecting negatively on the whole church. And so it needs to be dealt with in a broader way. That's less common, but sometimes it is necessary. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul gives us three reasons why discipline is necessary. And in doing that, he really points out uh, how discipline is intended to work in the body of Christ. Number one, he tells us that there is a need for discipline because sin affects the church. Uh, sin is not just a private issue, but sin affects the whole church. And we see that here again in verse 5. Paul says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent not to put it too severely. He's saying this is not just a personal issue between me and this other individual, but this is something that has affected your whole church. Now, who is the sinner that Paul is referring to here? We really don't know. Paul does not name him. That is a very pastoral thing to do. Paul is not singling him out by name and putting that on record here. The church knows who it is but we don't. And what was interesting as I was studying this passage is that most of the older commentaries, say before the 1800s, most of those older commentaries believed that the person mentioned was the sinner that's identified in 1 Corinthians 5, a man who was guilty of incest in the church, and here he was still being allowed to fellowship and be a part of the church community. But it was gross sexual sin that needed to be dealt with. And Paul wanted them to take action, to discipline this man and put him out of the church so that he might come to a place of repentance. Most of the modern commentators then believed that it's a different person that Paul is referring to and that it is more likely someone who had confronted and attacked Paul personally, attacking his character and his integrity. 
they understand this individual to be the one that Paul was referring to in chapter 1 and into chapter 2 here. When he talks about those that were questioning his motives because he had changed his travel plans. Or they questioned his character as a, an apostle because he wasn't doing it the way that the Greeks would normally do it. And Pastor Jim explained those things last week. Paul's message, his character, his method was not what they expected. Why should this spokesman of God suffer so? And Paul shares that that is part of, of his relationship with Jesus Christ. There is a cost involved in bringing the gospel to those who have never heard. And so here we have Paul then saying that, um, you know, if anyone has caused me grief, it's not so much my issue as it is yours in the church, and it needs to be dealt with that way. The call for discipline is because sin affects the whole body. And when, it, and when we look at Scripture, we see a classic example of that in Joshua chapter 7 in the story of Achan's sin, where we see how one person's sin can affect a whole group of individuals. In Joshua chapter 7, I won't read it for you, but remember, it's the story where the Israelites were now entering into the Promised Land, and the very first city that they were to attack was the city of Jericho. And in going up against that city, God had given very specific marching orders, literally marching orders. They were to march around the city once a day for six days. Each day, march around, stop, camp, once a day. And then on the seventh day, they were to march around the city seven times, give a great shout, and God would cause the walls of that city to collapse. Well, God also gave them this instruction. In keeping with the idea that this battle was like the first fruits of the harvest, everything in that city, all the gold, all the silver, all the treasures, were to be devoted to God. The Israelites were not to take anything for themselves personally. When they went into that battle, Achan disobeyed. He saw there a beautiful robe, and he coveted it. He saw 200 shekels of silver, and he wanted that for himself. He saw a wedge of gold, and he took that. And he hid all of those things in his own tent, thinking no one would see or know. But in the very next battle against the town of Ai, just a small town that did not require the whole army, the Israelites were defeated, and 36 men died. One man sinned. 36 men died because of it. And Israel was defeated in battle. And the way the author of Scripture records it, he tells us that Israel had sinned. He doesn't just say Achan had sinned. He says Israel had sinned because one man's sin affected the whole community. It is the same thing that happens in the church. If a pastor or a leader in a church sins, and that comes out, and that is known, it is simply devastating for a church to go through that. Those are some of the most difficult times for churches. And we see that. We hear that in the news when stories are told. In the Catholic Church, for example, with the abuse uh, issues that have come out there among clergy and priests, that's just been devastating. 
In the Protestant churches, you've seen stories where there have been uh, pastors involved in sexual immorality or embezzlement or things like that that are just horrible things that happen in a church. And when it occurs in an individual church, people tend to flee. They just kind of move away. They don't want to deal with it. They go to other churches. And sometimes an individual church may not even survive. But the same is also true if it's a person who's in the church who is a member. If they have a critical spirit, a divisive spirit, if they're a gossip or a slanderer, that can cause divisions that hurt the church. If someone is having an affair and uh, they think that they are keeping that covered, but people begin to see and know it affects the witness of the church and the community. And if the church knows about a situation like that and does not confront it, it is even worse. If a church caters to dysfunctional individuals, it will become a dysfunctional church. It's like alcoholism in a family. If the individual who's an alcoholic doesn't get help, And if nobody else confronts the issue and says we need to do something and instead just kind of tiptoes around it or tries to make it work, that family will become dysfunctional in the way that it deals with issues. And it will not get better until that problem is squarely faced. The same is true with sin in the church. So what kinds of sin need to be addressed in the church? Well, all sin needs to but especially sins like these. These are some examples given in Scripture. The teaching of doctrinal heresy needs to be addressed because that affects the whole church. A sexual immorality like the kind described in 1 Corinthians 5. Sins of speech like blasphemy, a critical spirit, gossip, slander. The sin of divisiveness. In Titus 3.10 it says, Warn a divisive person once, Then a second time, and after that, have nothing to do with him because of how serious those issues can be in a church. Why do we practice church discipline? It is because we care about the bride of Christ. And we are to be holy in God's sight, and so we've got to deal with sin when it occurs. But secondly, there's a need for discipline because sin affects the individual believer. And we see that in verses 6 to 9. What we find in the Scripture is that the goal of all discipline is restoration and reconciliation. It's not punishment for punishment's sake. The goal is to bring someone to a place of repentance where they will turn from their sin and they'll be restored or reconciled to other believers. And Matthew chapter 18 gives the steps involved. Step one is to go to your brother or sister in private and deal with the sin issue that's come up. That's always the best. That's where discipline should start so that it doesn't become a bigger issue. Let me give you an example. Uh, Last year, I went down with one of the men in our church who works at uh, the University of Minnesota and working with college students. And I went down there, and I, uh, it was kind of a Q&A time where they could ask me a lot of questions that they had about the Bible or about ministry or things like that. And so I'm being peppered with questions, and we were having a really good time talking about spiritual things. 
after the meeting was done, it had gone on for a couple hours, um, there were some students that hang, you know, hung around afterwards and wanted to ask some questions. And so uh, Ron, this other man, and I were there, and this one guy comes up, and you know, I've worked in the campus ministry before too, so I kind of see what's happening. And he goes, you know, um, um, what would you say to a guy who's um, you know, dating a non-Christian girl and um, he's a little more involved than he should be with her uh, uh, physically. And um, Ron just heard what was going on and just kind of cut to the chase and said, you know what? And he mentioned his name. I won't say it here. He goes, you know what? You need to stop sleeping with your girlfriend. You need to, you need to take a stand here. You are a believer. She is not a believer. You are not being a witness for Christ. You are being disobedient to God and what he says in his word. That is not the loving thing to do if you really care about this girl. You need to change your actions. You know, and he just, he just called it head on. I mean, this guy was just, you know, trying to skirt the issue. And he knew all of that. He knew what he needed to do, but he needed an older believer to say, listen, if you really love this girl and you want to be a witness for Christ, you need to change your behavior. And uh, that's, that's where the issue was dealt at head on. It didn't need to be a bigger thing because that was going to be handled in a discipleship relationship. And everybody else didn't need to know about it at that point because here was an opportunity for this young man to hear the truth spoken in love and then to act on that truth. You know, in the body of Christ, there are so many times when we need to do that. If we are in a mentoring relationship with someone, there's that opportunity to speak the truth in love and to give correction, exhortation, and call people to live in line with what God has said. If we are uh, you know, seeing a friend who's wandering away or falling away from the church, maybe they're no longer coming, they've kind of drifted or gotten cool in their relationship with God, there's a place for us to lovingly say, hey, how are you doing? Are things okay in your walk with God? Listen to them, pray with them, walk with them. But there may also be that point where something's come up that's a sin issue and you need to say something. And in doing that, you know, we're not playing a junior Holy Spirit. You know, we've got to leave that to God in terms of convicting of sin and all those kind of things. But the way that God uses believers in the life of others is so important that sometimes it takes another individual who will speak the truth in love and say, hey, this needs to change. Or is this an area where I can help you to grow and to maybe we can take a look at this together in Scripture and study it? Do you understand what I mean? You see, what I want to bring across in this message is that so often we think of church discipline being on the extreme end where it's something that's done before the whole body of believers. But discipline more so needs to be something that's done on the individual, personal level as a part of our relationship with Christ. And for that to be effective, we as individuals need to be open to that, open to correction humble and willing to listen when maybe we have a blind spot that we didn't see or when maybe it is a specific area where we are being disobedient and a friend is pointing that out. 
Matthew 18 tells us that if it doesn't work in that one-on-one situation, then take one or two others along to facilitate this kind of healing. I have done that. I think of a situation where I met with two couples that were in conflict. And they were having this disagreement and they were not able to work it out themselves. They wanted to, but they just weren't able to. And I sat down with them and we walked through using the peacemaker process. What's the issue? You know, let's first of all get the log out of our own eye. What's our part in this? What have we done that contributes to it? And how can we work then to reconcile this? Our goal is to honor Christ in all of this. What do we need to do? And they just shared their sides and how they were feeling and what they would like to see happen. And we prayed together. We made some action points, prayed together. Do you know that just a couple weeks ago, one of the individuals involved in that said, I can't tell you how wonderful it is now. I mean, I feel like our relationship has been so restored and, and back to what it was before that it's just a beautiful thing. It is wonderful when we can do that and work through our issues in a godly way where we feel like they're no longer a problem and brothers and sisters get along together in love. If that doesn't work, then thirdly, we need to tell it to the church. And in telling it to the church, it starts with the leadership, like an elder board, in our case, in our church, and the pastors. And it may stay there among the elders and leadership who deal with an issue. But if it becomes such a big thing, or it is so publicly known that it has to be told to the whole church, then that's what you do. The principle here is to keep the circle as small as possible in dealing with sin. And one of the reasons for that is that it makes restoration easier. If it is a public sin, everybody knows about it, then it needs to be shared publicly. But if it is a more private thing and it needs to be dealt with and can be dealt with on a smaller level, then that's the best thing because when it comes to restoration then, uh, you know, not everybody needs to know it, and that's a good thing. And I will tell you, in our church, we've done all four of those, all four things in the time that I've been here, and I can tell you that there are some victories and successes in that, and there are some disappointments where it did not go as we would intend. And the main difference between those two things is the heart of the individual involved. When, when we are confronted with sin, if our attitude is to get angry and defensive and to play the victim or pity me or it's everybody else's problem and we put it out there, we're never going to get better. We're never going to deal with that. But if our response when we hear it is we take that before the Lord and we listen to what God is saying and we humble ourselves and we listen and we repent and turn from our sin. There is joy, there's freedom and forgiveness and restoration. And I can tell you, I can you know, talk to some people in our church today and it is just a delight for me to see what God did in their life because of their obedience and because of their love for Christ and desire to make things right. Well, in 2 Corinthians 2, apparently the action that was taken by the church worked. And this offender repented of his sin, and now Paul is urging them to reaffirm their love for him 
You need to welcome this man back into the fellowship lest he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow and discipline have the unintended effect of driving him farther away. When that individual repents of his or her sin, we need to forgive them and restore them into fellowship in the body of Christ. You know, when you think about discipline in that way, I mean, isn't that exactly what we do as parents when we discipline our children? There are times when we have to correct them. We may uh, discipline them in a way that takes away privileges or takes a time out and puts them in their room or disciplines them in some other way. And, And then when they have thought about it, when they have said they are sorry or understood what it was, then we reaffirm our love for them. I thought of an example of that from a number of years ago when our kids were really young. There was a time when uh, Jason, our second son, he was about two and a half or three years old, and uh, we were sitting at the dinner table one night having dinner, and Jason wasn't eating his vegetables. You know, pretty normal thing with kids sometimes where they don't want to eat that, but I said, Jason, I want you to eat your beans. And he looked at me, and without blinking an eye, he said, no way, Jose. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I was like, I won't, where did he get that? And then the first thing I wanted to do was to keep from laughing because it was so funny to hear him say that. And I wanted to correct him because I wanted him to learn respect and obedience. So I picked Jason up, and I brought him back to his room, and I put him on his bed, and I said, Jason, I want you to think about what you just said and what you did. And I go back to dinner. After a few minutes, you know, I hear him in the other room, and he's, he's shouting, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Daddy. <laughs> and so I go back in, and I talk to him, and I say, Jason, what are you sorry about? And he says, I'm sorry I said, no way, Jose. <laughs> which is kind of funny. I'm glad I wrote this down because I don't even remember it anymore. And, um, you know, and so I'm talking to him and I say, well, Jason, are you going to eat your beans? And he goes, "Uh uh-huh, I'll eat my beans. And I say, Jason, I forgive you. And I pick him up and I give him a hug and I say, I love you. And I bring him back to the table. Now, why did I correct and confront my son? It's because I love him. And what's my goal as a parent? I want him to one day be a man of God. I want him to be a son who understands the need for discipline and respect and obedience. And by God's grace, you know, our prayers all along would be that God would do that work in their life to make them a spiritually mature man of God. What is God's goal in disciplining us? Well, his goal is to make us more like Christ. And he disciplines us because he loves us. He cares about us. And he will use other people in that process. He'll use circumstances to confront us. I mean, if we are disobeying God and we're being stubborn about it and going our own way, you know, it's kind of like that velvet two-by-four that comes up, whacks us on the side of the head to get our attention. How much better it is to be teachable, to listen to God's word, put that into practice in our life. And when we go through discipline, like when I think of Jason in that situation, does it hurt to do that? Yeah, there were tears. 
on his part. There's alienation. There's this separation that you feel when you're out of fellowship and you're kind of taken away from the table. And how good is it when there's restoration, when you are brought back into fellowship in the family and you sit around the table and you are able to talk together. And we deal with those things when they are small so that they don't become big issues that have to be addressed later in much more drastic measures. That's why discipline, church discipline, is something that is so necessary, and especially on the one-on-one level, that we might grow and become an individual who is pleasing to Christ in all things. Thirdly, there is a need for discipline because sin affects the reputation of God. Sin affects the reputation of God. Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul says, If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. There is a greater spiritual reality going on here. Paul reminds us that what we do, what we do is done in the sight of Christ. That he sees and he is present in our church, in our fellowship. In Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus said, For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Now, so many times believers will take that and they'll want to use that verse in reference to a prayer meeting. If we have two or three people, Jesus is there in our prayer meeting. Well, he is, that's true. But the context of what Jesus is talking about there is church discipline. That when the church deals with sin in the body of Christ, Christ is present there and we are acting with his authority and in his name because it is his reputation that is affected by it. I think of what Nathan the prophet said to David concerning his sin with Bathsheba. He confronted him and he said, David, by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. David's actions allowed the enemies of God to show contempt. To say, well, if that's what God is like, what kind of a God is that? You see, nothing is as sad as seeing Christians quarrel and fight over silly things in full view of the world. It is devastating to a church. I know of a church in Minnesota in a smaller community where they had such a bad a split that took place in that church involving the pastor too that, that that church eventually had to be closed. It just never recovered from the fallout of that and the reputation in the community was such that, you know, small town, people knew everything, what was going on and nobody wanted to go to that church. It was an evangelical free church. We had to close that church about 25, 30 years ago now, and it wasn't until more recently that a new church was reopened in that community again. Sometimes sin is so devastating that it affects the church and it affects the reputation of God. So what I'd like you to do today when we think about this topic 
is to think of discipline not just on the big level as something that a church would do on a more serious occasion, but to think about discipline as something that is done even one-on-one in our own life. And to realize that discipline is necessary for the health of the church to keep us whole and pure and right with God. It is necessary for the health of the individual, for our own spiritual growth, because all of us have sin that we need to deal with. And it is necessary for the glory of his name as a witness to the world around us. And just like we saw in that sketch, you know what? Believers are going to sin. And there are times when we may do something where we just go, oh man, why did I say that? Why did I do that? And the best thing you can do, the most courageous thing you can do is to be honest and admit it to those that were affected by it and say, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me and demonstrate the love and power and forgiveness of Jesus Christ by the changed life that you live? Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, there may be things that come to our mind, stories, examples, or present situations. And Father, I pray that we would humble ourselves before you and be open to your Holy Spirit's correction, first of all, But maybe we know of a brother or sister who's really fallen away and they need someone to come alongside to love them, to encourage them, and to speak the truth. Lord, help us to be that kind of brother or sister who can do that well in a way that honors you and that invites people back into a full, restored relationship with Christ and with his church. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.